about a year ago, um, actually it was about two years ago when I was tasked with designing a series on Revelation, um, and I decided, uh, I, I advocated to the campus pastors and senior pastors that we do a series on the seven churches, which we did, and that we save the entire book of Revelation to preach uh, right during the 2020 election. Uh, and when I threw that idea out, had we taken a, a vote in that moment, I'm pretty confident that vote would have been uh, seven to one, which is seven saying we should not do that, and, and me being the one strong contrarian saying, no, I think this is a really good idea. Um, but thankfully, I didn't overplay my hand. I slow played it, and here we are a year later, and, and we're doing it. We're, we're preaching through what is, I think, the most, maybe the most controversial book in the Bible, at the most controversial time uh, in, our, in our culture. And so here, I, I say that, just to, I'm, I'm going to give you a warning. Because in like three weeks, I don't want to hear, there's a lot of things I'm not going to want to hear from you. And if you bring it to me, I'm just going to say, not interested. Um, and here's the warning. <clears throat> if you are not interested uh, in growing as a disciple in Jesus, and if you're not open to the idea that you may be wrong about some things, and that you may, have, you may have some assumptions about the world that are incorrect and need to be reshaped by Jesus, um, if you're not open to being challenged in your discipleship to Jesus in any way, then neither this class nor the book of Revelation is for you. So I say that a little half tongue-in-cheek, but also half seriously. It's like, hey, man, I didn't like that you said that. I'm like, well, remember week one? I tried to, said that. I tried to warn you ahead of time um, because Revelation is a very aggressive book towards the church. And that's how we'll end our time tonight. Um, and I think Revelation really challenges a lot of American Christianity in very specific ways that I, th I, th I want to wrestle through. And I don't say that as someone who thinks I have all the answers and want to give you those answers. I actually want to say that I want to open up an honest conversation about what it means to follow Jesus in this time. And if you're someone who have, who's already figured it all out, and already knows everything, then like I said, neither this class, nor Revelation, nor me particularly is for you. <laughs> and so I say that, as someone, I, I want to have open minds together um, and really wrestle with, I mean, we're in, we're in an interesting time in our world, uh, politically, racially, culturally. And if, if, if there's no openness to really wrestling through what does discipleship look like to Jesus when it appears the world is, is falling apart all around us, which is, is very true of Revelation, we're not going to be able to understand what this book is trying to do to the church. So that's my little, uh, that's my little aggressive way of, of starting. And, and also, too, just to say, I, I think what, what, what gives an advantage of a smaller class is we can actually deal a little bit more honestly with some things. Maybe say some things that, that, uh, that you couldn't say in a Sunday morning setting, but, but to talk out. Because uh, our witness to Jesus is really crucial right now. And we want to we represent him well to the world. And so we need to have some honest conversation about all, what all of that looks like. Um, so that's, none of that's, there's no agenda there. I don't, I don't have any answers that I don't think you might have as well. Um, but I think at times the church has a hard time having honest conversations about hard things. And Revelation opens those doors in really profound ways if we're willing to let that happen. So with that, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm gonna, we're going to jump in. So let's pray. Uh, God, we want to follow Jesus really well and faithfully and all the way until either our death or until the words of revelation become reality in front of our eyes. And so this book, God, it, it provides a lot of warnings to us about ways we get it wrong and ways we can abandon the way of Jesus for the world um, and also incredible portraits of encouragement and for us to keep pressing on in hopefulness towards what Jesus is ushering in through his kingdom. So God, in this class, would you help us teach one another, push one another, challenge one another, so that in our own walk, we would more faithfully represent and embody Jesus to the world. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Um, well, one thing we're going to do together pretty frequently is we're going to read Revelation out loud. Um, and part of that is, is because of verse 3, where John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So actually, this was a, a book most likely meant to be read aloud in the church 
um, because it is such an image-heavy uh, book. So right in the beginning, it's clear the church was to get this letter, this, this book, and to read it out loud together. And that's something we typically don't do in the church anymore, um, or at least not as much. So we'll, we will, through the course of this, this time, actually read out the book together. And what I want to do tonight, I actually want to read chapter 1 uh, two times together. And, and while we're reading it, you have a little bit of a homework assignment to do, which is Revelation 1, in many ways, it sets the tone for the rest of the book, and it also gives you a lot of information about what the book is. And so I, I laid out, you know, if, uh, five key questions to any book, anything you're reading, questions you need to ask in order to be able to read it well, is who wrote what I'm reading, if that matters, uh, where did they write it, right, what kind of culture are they from, when did they write it, what time period am I reading this from, uh, what are they writing, and why are they writing it? Um, and oftentimes, in the first few uh, words, you get most of those questions answered. Um, so what I want to do, I want to read chapter 1 two times all the way through. And as you hear something that you feel like provides you an answer to one of those questions, I want you to write it down. And then we're going to report back uh, together. And let Revelation 1 do for us uh, what it's, it's meant to do, I think, which is to set the terms for what we're about to encounter. So if you, if you, if you have a Bible... Open it up, Revelation 1. Well, what I want to do is we'll, we'll, start, uh, we'll start with Janet, uh, and we'll read a, just read a couple verses, and we'll work our way all the way through the room. Uh, room. <clears throat> all right, so looking at our questions, uh, who wrote Revelation? John. And what do we know about John just from this one chapter? In prison. That's, we're not, we think so. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Whether that was an apostle, the apostle John or another figure named John who was well known in the first century. But you're right, the, the standard Christian view is that he was an apostle. Servant, that's right. And there, there is some debate on that, whether or not that means he went there to, like, preach the gospel to people. But I, the, the standard reading is typically he was there in prison, which is wh how I would, I would view it. What else do we know about him? He has a prophetic experience that... He sees something, yeah? Grover? Yep. Which is important because that, that would seem to indicate that John knew the churches he was writing to, that he had, he had been with them as a brother. And then even the term servant uh, in, the, in verse 1 is, is a, a, a word Paul typically uses of himself towards churches that he had helped start. Um, it's the, the Greek word for slave, doulos. Um, so there's pretty good indication that John uh, was a pastor of, of these seven churches, maybe helped start them or was, an, was a leader in those churches. So he's writing to people um, he most likely we know. So as I mentioned to, to Larry, there's, there's a little bit of debate whether it's John the Apostle or a guy just referred to as John the Elder. Um, I, I'm going to show some, some through the course of this class, some different places where Revelation is really interestingly linked to the Gospel of John. That's why I think John the Apostle wrote it, which meant, um, if that's true, he, this is at the, the, he's probably a pretty, pretty elderly individual at this point, um, depending on when, when Revelation was written, which we'll get into um, in a second. But that's not, that's not incredibly important for the, the interpretation of the book, whether it was actually an apostle um, or an elder. And the fact that this became scripture is a sign also that, that it was an apostle because any of the New Testament writings we have that became scripture are some way connected deeply to one of the apostles um, of, of Jesus. So that's, that's who, uh, was, who wrote it, John. And we'll learn more about him throughout the, the course of the, the book. Uh, where was it written? The island of Patmos, yeah. That, that question sounded harder than it was. It's, it's, it was in the, on the island of Patmos, which will, will become later, so we'll, we won't say uh, much 
um, about this. Any, uh, I'm curious, any indication of when it was written? Yeah, so it, which I think is interesting. If he was in exile, it means he got up to worship on Sunday by himself. Um, right? He's away from, he's exiled from his brothers and sisters in church, but he still got up to worship by himself in spirit with them, and he was caught up on the Lord's day. Yeah, good. That's a good. Well, you, maybe you don't, but it's, it, since no one else was mentioned, I'm probably inferring from silence that there was no one else with him. So there, there's a little bit of a debate on when Revelation was written, um, and there's two traditional options, and none of this would have been in Revelation 1, to be clear. Um, uh, is Either it was written around 65 A.D. or later in the first century, around 95 A.D. And the primary two reasons why uh, people lean towards an earlier time frame is, is first who the emperor of Rome was at that time, which is, is Nero. Um, and, and Nero, we know, persecuted Christians um, in particular ways. Which is why, uh, because Revelation, the context of Revelation, is one of persecution. That's one reason why, why people draw it to, uh, to Nero, as well as uh, the number 666 uh, could be a reference to, to Nero, um, potentially, uh, if, if you use the way Hebrew numbers uh, work. Uh, Caesar Nero could, could mean 666. Um, as well as the fact that Revelation 11 mentions uh, measuring the temple. Um, and, and people make the case that if the temple, uh, so in, in 70 AD, uh, Rome invaded Jerusalem and, and devastated the temple, le- like le- leveled the temple. There was no more temple after AD 70. And, and there's some people who would make the case that you wouldn't have written that, that phrase or you wouldn't have talked about the temple in that way um, had the temple been destroyed. And so they're saying, oh, this, it was actually, this was probably written before the temple destruction. Um, I lean to, towards the later date, towards 95 AD. Um, for three primary reasons. One is, is a huge theme of Revelation is, is emperor worship. Um, and we'll get more, that, more into that next week because we'll get the details of what that looked like. Um, and that, that doesn't really fit with Nero's time as emperor. That's not, Christians were not persecuted because they refused to worship the emperor with Nero. <laughs> Christians were persecuted under Nero because he was crazy. And he killed a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But in, in Revelation, it's primarily around Christians' refusal um, to honor the emperor, which is what led to their persecution. Second is it, where these letters are directed to uh, Asia Minor was one of the most prominent places in Rome where emperor worship was really significant. Um, so in, uh, in Revelation 13, uh, there's a... A, a reference to um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's been a number of studies that have pointed out there was a large statue of Domitian erected in Ephesus. Domitian was the emperor at, in 95 AD. And, and a lot of people have said that that probably, Revelation 13 is probably a reference to people being expected to worship at the feet of this Domitian statue, which is why the writer of Revelation makes this reference back to, um, to Daniel. But what's more important is Asia Minor, emperor worship was a big deal because if you worship the emperor, um, you could gain power in, 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 in Rome. Um, it's not unlike our own uh, context today, where the more you praise the person at the top of either political party, the more likely you're to find yourself uh, with a job in the administration. Whereas if you're critical of either political uh, leader, you're, not, you're probably not going to find yourself with um, a job in the administration. And so in, in this day, uh, a number of the cities in Asia Minor began to erect temples to uh, Roman emperors as a way of trying to gain favor with Rome, and we know that's true in Ephesus, we know that's true in Asia Minor, and it was happening late first century, early, for, uh, early second century, which is why, uh, why these themes make sense in Revelation, because that's what, that was what was happening um, in this time. And then the third reason why I would lean more uh, 95 AD um, is one of the Christian fathers, Irenaeus, uh, and I think this quote is in your pack, I may, I may have not, not put it in, but he wrote this, uh, and he lived between 120 and 280, somewhere in that 80-year 80, 80 time frame, um, and he wrote, uh, this is actually uh, an cr- early Christian uh, historian, Eusebius, uh, quoting him. Uh, Irenaeus wrote, uh, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of the Antichrist, for if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in the present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalypse, 
for it was seen not very long ago, almost in our day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. So the important thing there is, uh, basically Irenaeus is saying, one, like, hey, don't try to name the Antichrist. If we knew who it was, if that was clear, the writer of the apocalypse would have told us, and that wasn't very long ago. That was at the end of Domitian's reign. So I would lean more a later reading of Revelation, because I think it makes uh, better sense of the, of, of the facts. And yeah, not, that's not an important uh, decision um, in terms of how you, you read the book. Um, it's it's going to be pretty similar in, 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 in terms of how you begin to apply it. So that's, that's when I would date it, is I, th- I think John the Apostle wrote this book at the end of his life, um, towards the end of the first century, somewhere around 95 AD, when the emperor was Domitian. Um, any questions on that? A little bit of Roman history, which may or may not be interesting. <coughs> All right, so that's, that's the when. Uh, what is he writing? What are we reading? What clues do we get into what this document is that is in front of us? It's a letter. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the the Greek word being apocalypse. So it's a letter. It's a revealing, an apocalypse. It's 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 a vision. What, what John saw that he's writing down, certainly. John refers to this writing in one other way. A prophecy, that's right. So the, the three, what makes Revelation interesting is it's, it's three things. It's a letter meant to be read aloud to churches. It's, it's an apocalypse, which is its, its own literary uh, type of, of, of work, and it's a prophecy. Um, and so I want to walk through each of those um, briefly. The first, it's, it's an apocalypse. That's how the book starts. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which I, I pointed out um, on Sunday morning, you know, when we think apocalypse, we typically think end of the world, cataclysmic events. Uh, I made the joke about the example of Harry and Meghan leaving the British royal family, this being this world-shaking event that signals everything is coming to an end. That's not what an apocalypse is in the technical sense of the term. An apocalypse is just a revealing. What was once hidden is now uncovered. That's what an apocalypse is. And so I give you the, what is kind of the standard theological definition of an, uh, an apocalypse by a theologian named J.J. Collins. I think that quote's on, on the next page of your, your handout. And he writes this, uh, apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient Disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal, insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and spatial, insofar as it involves another supernatural (coughs) world. So what's important from that is, what John makes clear at the beginning, which which actually makes Revelation a little bit unique, is there were a number of of books we would describe as apocalypse, uh, apocalypses from this um, time that were Jewish writings. But what makes a little bit of what John does unique here is he makes clear this isn't just a supernatural being that's, that's giving him um, revelation. And, and there will be times when John is interacting with an angel. But he makes clear, he gives us the chain of revelation. Um, it's God gave it to Jesus Christ to show his servants, which is, is the church. So John's saying, this isn't just for me, this is for the church. Um, and he made it known by sending an angel to John, who then bears witness to, to us. So there's this, this chain of, of revelation. God gives it to Jesus Christ. He gives it to John through an angel. So it's not just John and a supernatural being. This is from God. That's what, that's what this apocalypse makes, um, makes clear. And, and the other piece of that definition that's really important is what an apocalypse does is it, it, is it sort of drops the curtain on reality, which is, you know, we're all, we can all see a number of things um, that's in front of us, that's happening in the world around us. And what an apocalypse does is say, actually, there's, there's a reality behind that that's interacting with the world in which you and I see. So you, it's not just that, um, that there's Rome and a Caesar in charge. There are, there are spiritual beings behind that as well. And an apocalypse begins to pull back the veil on what's really happening in the world. Um, so that, that's, that's sort of a technical definition of, a, of an apocalypse. Um, G.K. Deal, who wrote a, a, an, a, a commentary on Revelation, 
says that what's more important is the purpose of, of apocalypse, uh, more so than what it is, what it does, uh, <coughs> what the the nature of it is. And, and apocalypses are meant to console and to exhort um, to endurance in the faith. So it's it's both there's a comforting aspect to it of like, hey, it looks like the world's falling apart. It's not. That's a big part of an apocalypse. And it's also it's it's often a warning and a rebuke. Um, and that's why I, you know, I, listen, I started in a place of a little contention because re- Revelation is meant in those two directions. It is a rebuke and a warning to Christians, and it is also a comfort <laughs> to Christians. And you have to take, you have to take both, right? So Jesus, at the end of this chapter, he's revealed to us in, in deeply Old Testament terms uh, where he is one like a son of man with a golden sash around his chest, which is, is a priestly image. Um, the hairs of his head were white like white wool, which is a reference back to Daniel you get this terrifying image of Jesus, which is meant to comfort those who are following him and to warn those who are rebelling against him. And those are not just categories that are outside the church. Uh, or, or that's not just the Christians get comforted and the non-Christians get warned. Uh, it's, the, it's primarily directed at Christians to both be warned and comforted. So we'll get to that in a, in a second. And, and the key Old Testament background apocalypses are, are Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. Which, those are, those are three of the most difficult books to understand um, in the Old Testament, which is what makes Revelation um, so difficult, is it's, it's basically drawing on books that are already really difficult to understand and doing so in a literary form that's re- very difficult to understand. So that's what makes Revelation um, challenging. But I, I think the most important thing about what an apocalypse is, is it's, it's about asking the question, who is Lord? Who runs history? Who's in charge? So Apocalypse does a lot of things and a lot of strange things, but really it's, get, it's, ask, it's wait, making us meditate and wrestle with the question, who is Lord? Who's in charge? Um, any questions about Apocalypse? Which I, th- I think that category would be more clear as we go through the book um, and we see some examples of what an Apocalypse is. But any questions on apoc- what an Apocalypse is or, or just the category Apocalypse? All right, you guys are easy. Um, secondly, it's, it's a prophecy. <coughs> and, and basically, uh, when we think prophecy, we typically think, oh, that means it predicts the future. Um, and, and to some extent, that is true. But, but, but a prophetic work uh, is, I- at least in the Hebrew Bible, is something uh, a slightly different um, than just merely predicting the future. What it is, is it's, uh, you know, the phrase is, thus saith the Lord. It's God's final words spoken into a situation. So sometimes it's a word of judgment. Sometimes it's a word of prediction. But it's, it's God speaking uh, what is true into the world. And, and so really another part of what makes Revelation difficult to understand is, is you have to understand uh, Old Testament prophecy to understand what's going on in Revelation. And to give it one example, in Revelation 18 and 19, there's a long prophetic uh, speech against Rome. It's, ba- it's called Babylon, but it's, it's against Rome. And, uh, and what it's doing is it's actually taking all of the prophecies in, that are against Babylon in the, in the Hebrew Bible and restating them in Revelation 18 and 19. And it's ta- all those contexts, all those pla- it basically uh, prophecies that are in Isaiah and Jeremiah and recreating them for the context of Revelation and for these first century Christians as well as beyond. Um, and so there's no way to begin to read those prophecies without knowing that history and entering into that um, history. So when we say uh, that Revelation is a prophecy, it doesn't just mean that it's, it's, it's going to predict the future. It also means it's drawing on all of those Hebrew, Hebrew works in the Old Testament um, that were prophetic works themselves. It's, it's, it's drawing on that literary background. Um, and then the third thing that was mentioned, it's, it's a letter to the church. It's meant to be read aloud in the context of um, the church. And, and so we're, we're given seven churches um, here, and, and in particular in Asia Minor, a part of an in particular, a, a particular part of the world. Um, but that, that, that's really important to name those three things, because as we read through the book, we're going to always need to keep those three things in mind as we interpret it. It's, it's an apocalyptic work, which means we need to understand what, what an apocalyptic work is trying to do uh, to interpret it. It's a prophetic work, and it's also a letter to the seven um, churches and, and a few ways, a few different ways this matters is is first even the fact that it's written to seven churches, uh, right? The fact that it's written to seven churches mean that we should not be reading it, right? It's not addressed to Kansas City, um, and well, no, it's seven is the is a uh, especially apocalyptic imagery is the 
a, a number of completion and wholeness. So by, by writing to seven churches, John is signaling this is for the whole church. Um, so, when, uh, so even the seven churches that are given to us uh, is probably given in order of, of the way a, a letter carrier would take a letter and visit those seven churches. Um, what John's not saying is, now listen, there's a town in between those two towns and there's a church there. Don't let them read this. No, that it's for that town as well. It's for the church universal, which is a part of even why this became scripture. So the number seven, it's not, it's not that there's seven churches that need this letter. It's the church universal that needs this letter. Um, secondly, what's important, and this is where I'll start to tip my hand a little bit, but I, I, do, like, I think this is something we, we shouldn't lose sight of, is this is written to the first century church, which means if, if, if there's something in the book that they could not have made sense of or is completely irrelevant to them, um, that means we're, our interpretation's off in some way. We've, we've lost sight of why this book was. Now, that doesn't mean there's no prophetic future fulfillment in Revelation. I'm not saying that. But we have, to, we have to stay tethered to the fact that this had incredible relevance to the first century um, church. So those two things are, are a little bit of, of, uh, of the, the parameters to, um, to the book. So I'm going to press into uh, Revelation 1 in a second. But, but just broad speaking, okay, that's, this is John wrote it. He wrote it maybe around 95 AD. He's writing a prophetic apocalyptic letter to the church. Um, and, and, and that's what we have in front of us. That's what we're about to embark on. Um, questions, uh, thoughts, anything for clarity before we get into the text itself? <coughs> All right. <coughs> well, if you have a, if you have a Bible, say there in Revelation 1. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get into the question of why the book was written and, and there's like, you can, you can answer that in a hundred different ways. Obviously, like the why, there's a number of purposes. But the three I want to I focus on in Revelation 1. Um, first, uh, it, and I mentioned this in passing on Sunday, but I want to go more into depth on this. Um, first, this is a book to live, not primarily study. And that's not meant to like make an antithesis, but that's even why I started. Like what I, what I want a lot of this class to be is not like, we find out who the you know what the mark of the beast is, and we make sure we don't take it. Uh, that's that's not what I that's not the per- like. I think this class is going to make you wrestle uh, with your discipleship to Jesus. And so, verse three, John makes very clear he makes very clear what he what he's what he wants to see happen out of this book, which is blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, who hear, who keep what is written in it. So this is a book, and, and I think someone's. Uh, 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 Translation even had obey what's in it, which the Hebrew word for keep means obey. It's, it, this, is, this is a book to be um, obeyed. And so what that means is as the result of us both preaching through this book and then in this space going a little bit deeper into the text of Revelation, your life should be lived differently because you encountered this book. Like if we get to mid-November and, uh, and we're done with the series and there's no element of your life that has changed in light of Revelation, you've failed to, to we've all failed to miss or to, to, to understand the purpose of what, why this book was, was written, which is to get us to live faithfully in discipleship um, to Jesus. So all of the visions, all of the prophecies, all of what we're going to read is all meant to enhance your faithfulness in discipleship Jesus. Um, so I, I don't need to say much more uh, on that because that we're going to get into that. What is the ethical demand of this book on the church? Um, and it's I think I think it's one that's very challenging to our culture in particular. I think it's going to be a hard one for us to hear um, in our cultural context. But that's that'll be next week. Um, so first, th- it's a book to live, not primarily study. Not that we're not we're, we're studying it, but we're studying it in order to live differently. Um, second, uh, and I forget if I made this uh, a part of um, a part of one, but uh, the, this book la- lays out two functions of the church, and it's in uh, it's in verse um, I think it's verse yeah verse five, uh, actually verse six. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us the church a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And these, these two roles of the church will be very important throughout the rest of the book. The church is a kingdom, and the church is priests. We are priests to 
to God. So I want to I unpack that um, a little bit. What it means that we are, we are to be a kingdom and we are to be priests. And so I always want to pa- uh, pause. When, it, when we say the church is a kingdom, which John is saying that, the church is a kingdom, what do you think that means? huge implication that we have a king yeah and even don't just think like kingdom like think back to this context john is writing to the first century church he's writing apocalyptic prophetic prophetic letters what is it what does he mean when he looks at us and looks at the church says we are a kingdom Yep, that's going to be a huge thing. Uh, you say it louder. Yeah. I wouldn't go that far, because in Revelation 7 and 9, even what we'll see people bringing in parts of their culture to the new heavens and new earth. Um, as a way of celebrating the good parts of, of different cultures. So we're still, we're still in this culture. We're still a part of another kingdom. And yet, there's a di- we're, we're distinct. Like, we're, we're another kingdom as well. Steve? This, that, and that's really important because one of the one of the ways that, that evangelical culture I think misunderstands the scriptures is we make Jesus and salvation a very individualistic experience. So I become a Christian, and that means one day I get to heaven. Um, that's that's actually not the gospel Jesus preached. Jesus first. Uh, does anyone remember it, Gospel of Mark? The first thing Jesus speaks. His his summary of his message that go, that Mark gives us. His first gospel he gives us. Repent, for the kingdom is near. So Jesus' message was a message of a kingdom, which implies a king, which implies uh, laws, a way of being in the world, uh, implies rulership, authority, um, all kinds of things. Other thoughts. What does it mean that we are a kingdom? I mean, that'll be a part of the, the theme. I mean, we are, as a church, not just a, an impersonal, like, nation, but a family itself. Yeah. What, it, what it's doing, and, and this is... This is maybe the primary theme of Revelation is setting up a clash between the kingdom of God, the church, us as a kingdom, and the kingdom in which they were living in, which is Rome. And and those two things are going to, there's going to be a lot of conflict between between those two things. Um, and even, I, I think the way I would, I would I'd further illustrate this is, is as Christians, we should have more in common with a fellow Christian from another culture, another, another place in the world, another part of our city, we should feel more solidarity with that person than we should with someone who is not a Christian and yet very culturally like us. So to give that an, an illustration of that, when I went to China um, and we were looking at, at potentially uh, partnering with, with one of the churches there who, who at the time was thinking about launching a seminary and a church planning organization, all that's on pause given the political realities of China right now. But he, like, he wanted to grill me theologically before, uh, before he was interested in anything that I, we might do together. And so where he went, uh, where he started grilling me was in Revelation. He wanted to know my, my, my theory of the end times and how I read Revelation, all that. And so we went into that. And what's funny is like we, I couldn't understand a word he was saying because he was speaking uh, Chinese and I'm speaking English. But we, like, we started laughing uh, about insider Revelation jokes uh, 
you know, there was just this common bond very quickly formed, even though he could not understand a word I was speaking, I couldn't understand a word we were speaking, or he, uh, he was speaking. We're in China drinking tea, which I'm, I'm coffee, I'm not tea. Uh, and also, it was one of the tables that's like on the ground, so I'm like, I'm like kneeling on the ground, incredibly uncomfortable. It's just like this very strange experience, and, and yet, because our, our bond is in Christ, there was this incredible connection. And, and here... So that, that's, a, that's a fun example of what that looks like. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to poke a little bit with another example. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I was in college the night that the United States uh, decided to invade Iraq, um, invade Iraq as a country. Um, and the next morning, I was in my Old Testament uh, prophetic class with uh, my professor, Dr. Mangano. And uh, I don't know if this is a, a dated reference at this point, um, but the, ma- if the Matrix... Agent Smith, uh, you know, Mr. Anderson, that guy, uh, he, uh, he talked just like my professor, uh, Dr. Mangano. He was, very, he was very slow, very, very deliberate, um, but he was an amazing professor. And so we were, we're invading into Iraq. Many of us know people who are in the military. We're not sure, um, you know, if we know people who will be going to, to war soon because of this, this decision. And so he, he prays a pretty standard American church prayer for the troops, for um, for people who are, for the war, for peace, all those things. And then he made a shift and he prayed for Iraqi soldiers and Iraqi Christians and everything they were about to experience being invaded, um, the devastation that was likely, the destruction that was likely. And I just, you could just feel the tenseness of the room because that's not typically how we pray. And yet that prayer exhibited that his, sol- his solidarity was with Christians, Christians either on the American side or on the Iraqi side, more so than with um, American success in this military campaign. And it was, we, de- we debriefed that. It was really interesting. But I've never forgotten that moment because it, w- it was a palpable reminder that I share more in common with someone who lives in another country who, who follows Jesus than I do um, with an American who does not follow Jesus, or at least I should. And when I don't, when I actually have more in common with a non-Christian American than with a Christian uh, of a different cultural background than me, when I have more solidarity with a non-Christian who shares my culture or, or my politics or whatever, if I have more solidarity with that person than with um, a Christian, then I, that's a sign that the kingdoms in my heart are out of line, alignment. Right, like the alignment of our kingdoms is first the kingdom of God, we're a kingdom of, of priests, or we're a kingdom, and then it's our, our other kingdoms. And that's not to say it's not important um, that we're not Americans or that we're not kings of Sidians. Um, that, that is, th- those are important. And as I said in Revelation 7, when you see the people entering the new heavens, new earth, they bring their cultures with them. Um, and so there, there's something good about that, but there's also something that I think begins to challenge a little bit of, of some assumptions we have in our own cultural context about where kingdoms line up in terms of priorities and values. And here we start with, with John naming, hey, we have a battle on our hands, and Rome is a different kingdom. We as the church are a, a kingdom. Um, so that, that's where it starts. And then this, the second thing I want to say to that is, uh, is what Melissa mentioned, which is, is that we are representatives of the true king. And what's important about that, and those of you who were here on Sunday, um, I spent a little bit of time on the fact that Jesus is named as the ruler of the kings on earth. And what's important about that is that is not named as a future reality. In other words, John does not say one day Jesus will, when he returns, then he becomes the ruler of the king. No, he is now the ruler of the kings on earth, which has an incredible implication for you and I as Christians. It means the actual ruling authority in the world, we are a part of his kingdom. Now that raises, well, it's like, okay, why does it feel like the church is losing or why does it feel like uh, there's so much injustice? Well, Revelation's going to deal with all that. But in chapter one, all that matters is we are, we are his kingdom and he is the ruler of the kings on earth now. And so I, I want to read a, a quick quote because I think this should lead to Christians having this incredible spirit of, uh, spirit of confidence in the world, even when it feels like we're losing, even when it feels like the way of Jesus is, is becoming less and less important or less and less respected in the broader world, we should have enormous confidence because we serve the rule of the kings on earth. And so there's this guy, uh, his name is Douglas Hyde. He wrote, uh, wrote on becoming a Catholic after he left the Communist Party. 
Um, and he just, he just commented on uh, Christians in the context of the United States just being like kind of depressed Debbie Downers about our cultural setting. And this is like he just didn't get this. He just could not understand this as a new convert. And here's what he wrote. <clears throat> he said, coming straight as it were from one world to another, coming from like being a communist uh, you know, guy trying to, to make the United States com- communist, coming from that world into Christianity, into becoming a Catholic, it astounded me that there should be people with such numbers at their disposal and with the truth on their side going around weighed by, down by the thought that they were a small beleaguered minority carrying on some sort of impossible fight against a big majority. The concept was wrong. Psychologically, it was calamitous. This is some of what Revelation is going to do is it's going to pull back the veil on the the army, the kingdom, the king, you and I have at our disposal that we're serving to try to get us out of this, you know, kind of pity party mentality of, oh, the church, you know, the church is falling. It's not what it could be. People don't respect Christianity. It's like, no, 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 no. We are a kingdom and we serve the rule of the kings on earth. And Revelation is going to pull back all of what that means for you and me in this time. And listen, if that, if that was true for maybe 10,000 Christians scattered throughout Rome in the first century, it's like, what do we have at our disposal today across the world, two billion Christians, every continent? It's like we should be full of confidence um, in, in the king. So we're a kingdom, and that moves on then. Uh, not just, we're not just a kingdom, but we are all priests to God, to the God, to God and Father. Um, what does it mean that we are that we are priests? So we're a kingdom, but we're not just a kingdom, we are a kingdom of priests. Everyone in this room, if you follow the way of Jesus, you are a priest. What does that mean that you are a priest? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's devotion to worship that's a part of that. Yep, that's going to be a huge piece. Think even what, what did a priest in the Hebrew Bible do? Yes. Yep. That's a big piece of it. What else, did, what are the nasty part of what priests did? Well, to me, maybe it's nasty. Maybe it's all of you it's nasty, especially you hunters. What? Sacrifices. They, they got into the mess of it. And, and did a sacrifice. And so here, here's what's important. I, I actually mean something. Uh, that's not just a, a joke. But <clears throat> in particular, throughout the rest of the book, Christians are representative or, or, or are representatives of the sacrifice of Christ. And they are to represent that to the world. So, so crucial to the rest of, of Revelation is the sacrificial death of Jesus. Especially Revelation 4 and 5 where you see the blood or the, the lamb and the lion and his sacrifice and what it means um, both for the church and for the world. Um, but we are, we are the ones who represent, represent the fact to this world that you can be made right through the atoning sacrifice of, of the Messiah, of the King. Um, and so we're, we're, to represent, um, we're to represent that. Any other thoughts on, uh, on priests? I don't know. I don't know if it would be. Certainly, that'd be a part of it. Like, up, it's it's definitely upping the game of like everyone's a priest. But even in a, in a sense, uh, that that phrase is taken from Exodus 19, where really that was God's vision for all of His people, even in in um, in Israel, was that everyone was to be to be a priest in that representative function of of representing God to to the world. And this is even a good example of basically like. There's almost not a word in Revelation 1 that isn't referring back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So this is from Exodus 19, um, verses 5 and 6, uh, where 
God's word says. Now, therefore, uh, if you will indeed obey me. So this is God speaking to Israel as he forms Israel. Now, indeed, if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the, I, to me, the two things that are most important are, one, so we represent the sacrificial death of Jesus to the world. But two, we are, we are distinct. I think it was Jake that, that brought that out. We are, we are a kingdom that is different than the people who live around us. That there should be some verifiable sense which, which someone will look at your life and see you as different than someone who would have the same age, background, cultural setting that's not a Christian. Um, we're, we're set apart. And even, uh, even the way this, is, this gets represented in, uh, in Revelation 1 is, is a quotation from uh, the book of Zechariah. So I mentioned um, there are three Old Testament books that, uh, yeah, sorry, the, a, the AC, man, it's like you can't, you can't touch it. They ha- they're in control. This, we may be a kingdom serving the world of the kings on earth, but I'm not in control of the AC in this room, so I apologize for that. Um, but uh, he, quotes, uh, he quotes from, uh, <laughs> you have to, you're going to have to bring uh, blankets next time you come. Uh, I'll, and I'll talk to our facilities team about that. Earlier it was hot, and I didn't think it was going to turn on, and now I'm like, I'm freezing up here. Uh, where am I? Verse 7. Okay, uh, so verse 7 begins to unpack a little bit about what this priest, uh, being a kingdom priest means. Uh, and this is, I think, this is the, the one verse in Revelation 1 that is clearly future-oriented. This, is, this has not happened yet. Verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And we don't have time to go into this. That, that's a prophecy from Zechariah 12, um, where the original meaning of that was, was Israel rejected a messenger of God, and God judged them, and then their, their wailing, their mourning was, was repentance um, before God. And what, what John's doing here is he's actually opening this up now to not just Israel, but to the whole world. <clears throat> Anyone who looks on Jesus with mourning, with repentance, is, is now part of this kingdom, is now welcomed into a part of this kingdom. And that's our role as the kingdom of priests, is to, to announce that message and to welcome people in to the, the kingdom of, of God. So the church, yeah, Jay. So that revelation is like all about that, because that you're right. It's when you start talking kingdom, when you start talking kings, it's like okay. So what? How? How do we fight? And I'm debating whether to give the answer away of revelation or to save it. I'm gonna I'm gonna save it because it's prepared. It's you're getting prepared for that, but you're asking the, the right question, which is okay. If we're really really kings on earth, uh, we're a kingdom of priests. We're to we're to take Jesus to the world. What does that mean? And the answer is, it's a hard one when we get there. But we're not going to get there yet. Um, but we'll get there next week, I think. <clears throat> any, other, any other questions or thoughts before I move into the third, final thing for tonight? Which I don't want to admit, like, Jay's question is so important. Um, and is so at the heart of Revelation and, and the detention of, of everything going on. All right, so third and finally then, uh, and, and this is really goes back to even what an apocalypse is, which is asking the question, who is Lord? And Revelation is about descri- explaining to us or, or, or making the case to us that God is sovereign over all history, past, present, and future. Right, so you have this language, the God who is, who was, who is to come throughout Revelation. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the first um, and the last. And all of that language is drawn from Isaiah, um, which is... When, when he says he's the first and the last, it doesn't, that's, that's a claim of sovereignty. 
it's a claim of I am in control of history. Um, so it's not just an interesting literary phrase. When, when God says that in the, the book of Isaiah, he's saying, I'm in control of what's happening. Um, I'm sovereign over, over history. Um, and, and a part of that, then, what's going to be really important for Revelation is that it, it is the culmination of all of the Hebrew prophecy in the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, <coughs> this is going to get a little technical for a second, and I hope, uh, I hope you can stay with me. Um, and I'll try my best as a teacher, but, but it's a little bit complicated. But Revelation 1.1 1, 1, uh, is most likely uh, John quoting from Daniel 2. Um, so Daniel 2, is, it's originally, uh, I think that's written in Hebrew, um, not Aramaic. It's original in Hebrew, but then there was a translation of Daniel into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. And so that would have probably been the Bible that John most likely uh, would quote from, because that's the Bible most of the New, the New Testament early Christians would have been, been more familiar with, because many of them were not Jewish, they didn't know Hebrew, so they had the Greek Old Testament. So, so Revelation 1, uh, verse 1, is basically quoting Daniel um, chapter 2, verse 28. So if you have a Bible and you can go to Daniel, you should do that. It's a little bit tough to, to pick up in the English, because, you know, they're, they're just translating in, in different words. Um, but there's a deep connection between those two verses that's really important for the interpretation of Revelation. But what's happening in Daniel 2 is Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the, the ruler of, <coughs> of Babylon, where, um, where Daniel's living now. And, and they get into some conversation about prophecy and about, uh, the, about the end of the world, um, even. And so in uh, chapter 2, 28, uh, Actually, I'll start in verse 7. Daniel, said, he, Daniel answered uh, the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery, mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. The dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And he goes into these visions. But th this phrase, latter days... Um, is important because basically what, what John does is he, he takes the Greek from that verse and recreates it in Revelation 1, but he, he makes one change. So the change he makes uh, is instead of saying what will take place in the latter days, uh, he says what must soon take place. Um, and so John is, is making a shift from Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel, um, some of which are even said those, those things are sealed up because it's not time for them yet. John is now saying uh, it is time for those things. Those things must soon take place. And then what you have through the rest of Revelation, you have, even in Revelation 1, you have a number of Old Testament pro prophecies that John is saying they have now been fulfilled. And so what's important about that uh, as we go into the book of Revelation is, and, and this is a quote from G.K. Beale, uh, where he says, John's book is a prophetic work which concerns the imminent and inaugurated fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom in Jesus Christ. And what he means by that is Revelation is, is the beginning of the fulfillment of the end, but not the total fulfillment of the end. And the reason that's important is because, again, this is written to first century Christians um, who... Uh, who would be hearing now the, the end of the beginning, uh, the, the beginning of the end has begun. That's what, that's what John is saying. Now, that's the first thing I've said, which is beginning to get into where Christians begin to, dis to just disagree about how to interpret Revelation. A lot of people look at Revelation and say, uh, or there's basically three categories. People would say the bulk of Revelation, especially 4 through 20, is primarily future. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, there are, uh, a second category would be they, it's all already happened. Um, and the third category would be uh, we're, in the, we're still in the midst of it. It's, it's, it's been inaugurated, but it's not been completed. Yeah, and those three, and again, this, that's a very, a very broad uh, description of three very complicated theological systems that we'll get into more depth on, but that's uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Pre would be most of Revelation's not been fulfilled yet. Um, it's 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 future oriented. So what we're reading in Revelation is is to come. There our post would say, uh, and they would typically say Revelation was written in 65 A.D. They would uh, interpret actually the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 as the as most of what Revelation is talking about. Um, and so when you get into some of the the, the prophecies, it's referring to that event in A.D. Um, 70. The third position being uh, <coughs> um, the fact that 
that the prophecies had begun to be fulfilled. So when you read through Revelation 4 through 20, some of what you're getting we're living through right now, and some of what you're going to get is, is yet to come, um, depending on the particular prophecy and the particular moment. Um, <clears throat> I'm already tipping my hand a little bit of where I'm coming from, um, but I, I, I don't think this is necessarily very specific um, to any one of those three positions. But in Revelation 1, John makes the claim that a number of these prophecies of the Old Testament, we already see they've, they've, they've happened. Um, so he's saying that of Daniel 2. He's saying the book that was sealed up with Nebuchadnezzar has, is open. Or it's, it's happening. Um, that's, what, that's what he's saying. Um, <coughs> the reality of Jesus being uh, the ruler of the kings on earth now. The Messiah is installed as king now. That's what John is saying, right? And I, I don't think um, that's, that's limited to one of those three different positions. Jesus is king enthroned now, which even goes back to Acts 1. This, the, the, this was a key piece of theology for the early church. Um, <coughs> the reality of us as a kingdom of people, God, of, as a kingdom, the people of God, that's been inaugurated now. We are a kingdom to priests um, now. In verse 9, John says, I am your partner, your brother, in the kingdom. Right, so whatever the church is now, we are a kingdom now. Verse 16 uh, mentions Jesus holding a sharp two-edged sword. Um, and that's a reference back to Isaiah 11, which was a messianic prophecy about Jesus bringing in, or the Messiah one day bringing in the perfect kingdom of God. John's saying, that's begun. It's not finished, but it's begun. G he's got the sword, and he's about to use it. Um, that's, that's the image being given um, to, to us. Zechariah 4, which is an end-time prophecy, about, uh, which refers to lampstands. Jesus is walking in the midst of lampstands. Um, which, which we'll get into next uh, week. But, but again, the point being, Zechariah 4 is beginning to be fulfilled. And so a lot of what Revelation 1 is doing is saying the fulfillment of these crucial end-time prophecies in, in the Hebrew Bible are beginning to be fulfilled. And, and all of that goes back to verse 1, replacing uh, the things that soon must take place, which is from Daniel 2. Instead of it now being these things will happen in the latter days, which is what Daniel 2 says, John is now saying these things are, are, are imminent. They're going to come um, quickly. So that's, that's all the, the Old Testament imagery. And if you want any questions on that, I'll stay after and, and come up. You can talk to me. But here's where I, where I want to end our time um, and, and set up a little bit of, of next week, both the sermon, those that you do here on Sunday, and then, then our time together next week, <coughs> which is that Revelation is ba basically has two messages to the church. Um, <coughs> it's, it's warning and it's, it's comfort. Right? And so you get this with, with John and Jesus. John, because he's faithful um, in his discipleship to Jesus, the message John gets from Jesus when he encounters him with the, the swords in his hand, his hair is white, you know, every, this intimidating vision of Jesus, John falls at his face, face terrified, falls before Jesus terrified, which is the right response. Um, and yet Jesus says to him, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death. Hades. So that is one message that Jesus has for his church in this book. Is don't be afraid. I'm in charge. I have the keys of death and Hades. I've risen from the dead. You have nothing to be afraid of. That's message one. Uh, message two is, is the sharp two-edged sword, which next week uh, Jesus will we'll talk about using that sword on a church and um, and it's, that's not a, it's not a good thing. <laughs> and, and what it is, it's a warning um, against compromise. And so you get this image of Jesus at the end of Revelation 1. He's in the midst of the, the lampstands, which are the church. He's in the midst of, of the church assessing its spiritual condition. And to some Christians, he's going to say, you're terrified and, and your life is at, at risk. And I want you to know I'm, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Um, and to other Christians, he's going to say, you have compromised yourself. You're not a part of the kingdom anymore. And you need to repent and take me seriously. Or this, this sword in my hand is going to be wielded in a way that you're not, you're, it's not good. <coughs> um, and so Revelation, as much of a, a book of comfort, it's also a book of, of warning. Um, which is why I started where I started tonight. Is I, think, I think it's important for us to hear to have the response John had, which is to fall at the feet of Jesus as though dead. And then to let him assess us spiritually. And then either move into repentance of what we might need to repent of or receive his comfort. The good news that he's in control. He's, he's in control of history. Um, he's the first. He's the last. He's the living one. He died. Behold, he's alive. 
forevermore. And so that's, that's a lot of what we're going to do together is let him assess us spiritually through this book of Revelation, which is the whole point um, of it. Uh, so with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us. Feel free to stick around if you have questions, you want to push into anything um, that's, uh, that I talked about um, tonight or any questions you even have just in general about Revelation 1. Oh, sorry, one, one last thing, uh, housekeeping. Um, I have uh, two suggestions for, uh, for homework on the back end of the, the, your handouts. Uh, and, and this is sort of like an opt-in opportunity. Um, I'd love for everyone, and I, I even said there's two levels here. Level one is, hey, man, Jesus might come back on Sunday, and the last thing I want to be doing is reading, you know, studying Revelation before I'm about to live it. Uh, don't make me waste my time. Um, so if, if, if you're like, I don't have a ton of time this week, what I'd love for you to do is read Revelation through one time. It's about uh, 10, 15 minutes a day. And, and come with five questions that you hope get answered. And you email those to me or, or bring those questions to me so I get a sense of even what's confusing to you, what's, what do you hope gets clarified. So just read through Revelation uh, one, or read through all of Revelation one time, five questions. And then secondly, if you're like, man, Kirk Cameron's writing the next Left Behind movie and you want to help him create it, uh, if you want that level of engagement, uh, I've got a chapter printed off from a book that I think is really helpful um, uh, just about what Revelation is. Um, and I have a few copies printed off, and I'll also email the PDF um, out to you um, as well. It's, it's about a 20-page chapter from a book that I, I think is really helpful on Revelation. So that's a way to engage this week um, at home to continue to press into the book. So if you have questions, stay and hang. I'd love to talk more, but let me pray as we leave. God, we thank you for uh, that John saw something that you told him to write down for us, that, that now 2,000 years later, as we, we continue to meditate and long for the return of Jesus, uh, we, can, we can let you assess us spiritually. Um, you, can, you can speak into to where we are in our faithfulness in following Jesus, because that's what we all want. We want to follow him faithfully. We want to be challenged. Uh, we want to, to, to follow him in the ways he, he calls us to do and be, and so... So lead us in that, I pray, all this in his name. Amen.